Hi, I'm John Newcomer, designer of Joust and Cinestar, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and this is a podcast where Paul Drury, hello, Tony Temple, hello, and myself chat with the coders and creatives, oftentimes one and the same, from the golden age of coin-op video gaming. You'll recognise Paul's surname from Retro Gamer magazine, and please do check out Tony's site, arcadeblogger.com. Not to mention his forthcoming book detailing his experiences and oddball encounters from a lifetime of playing Atari's Missile Command. Industry legend is something of an overused epithet for classic video game designers. But for this episode of the podcast, we can think of no better title to bestow upon Mr. John Newcomer, designer of a seminal, best-selling arcade title, Joust. John arrived at Williams Electronics after a stint in the toy industry, bringing to the company a unique perspective on video game design, sometimes at odds with the norms and tropes of the day, but all the better for it. John left Williams to join Milestar, previously known as Gottlieb, where he worked alongside Qbert programmer and former TDE guest Warren Davis. John and Warren would then return to a revamp Williams and go on to work on Eugene Jarvis's controversial game, Narc. If you enjoyed the show, please do take the time to review and rate us on your podcast platform of choice and do visit tdepodcast.net for all the usual social media links. John, yes, you've spent many decades in the video game industry, so I, I thought we'd start by asking you for some advice. Um, what would you say to a prospective game designer if they really wanted to get their CV noticed? Um, you need to have your own definition of what is fun and how are you going to make a player smile, and you can keep evolving that definition. You talked about the importance of making people smile. Uh, I understand that you actually submitted your CV to Williams in a particularly unique way. Yes, um, I I put my uh, my resume rolled up into a rubber chicken, <laughs> and it was sort of a test. It was a test, and it's also my weird sense of humor. And it's like, well, okay, well, first of all, if if you can't take that, then we're just we're just not going to match together. So I wanted to see if they had a sense of humor. And also, it was an inside joke to myself, kind of, because I had already had in mind that, that a game that I would like to do was going to be uh, something with, uh, with birds. <laughs> yes, I think we'll come to that later in your story. Um, of course, when you started there, you, you didn't start as a programmer. You started as a designer. And that was a role that was pretty new in the industry back in 1981. Um, I wondered, how was the role of designer explained to you yeah i was one of the only um designers in the u.s that i knew of i'm not sure about when the game refuge guys came in but uh they they had a, a dedicated designer but for video programming it, uh in the u.s it was totally unknown but to me 
I use that as leverage as my calling card because I was a toy inventor. And even though I wasn't a programmer and I had no idea even how to use a computer, but I was quite familiar with communicating with programmers and doing some um, electronic handheld toys, it was not an unknown thing. And so in the toy inventing world, the designers were the ones running the projects and then they would work with model makers, programmers, whatever you needed to get the job done. And then I also threw it back at them because I'm going, okay, so how is this different from pinball designers that don't program? I mean, so... Yes, I see. And I was also following what was going on in Japan, which was also unheard of because in the U.S. it was like the U.S. versus Japan... And in the toy inventing business, we were also trying to pitch ideas to Japan, like Bandai, I knew of Tomica, or Tomy, and Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And I was aware that they were doing things differently. So Miyamoto, who is my idol, actually, he's, I think he's the greatest of all time. He was an artist. He went to do manga uh, comics, but he got, he got an in with, um, Nintendo. Yeah. with Nintendo doing design. So, yeah. Back, back when you started, John, the programmers tended to do everything. The game design, the coding, even sometimes pop the hardware in the early days. I just wondered if there was any resistance to you coming in as a game designer. Was there anybody kind of, hey, who's, who's this guy? We used to do this ourselves. Yeah, it, ver- it yes, it varied. Uh, in fact, the very first week I started, there was a programmer at Williams who, like, puffed out his chest and was acting like he was speaking for a group of people and he basically threatened me saying we don't need you here get out and (laughs) how how did you respond to that then well at that time i can tell you there was nobody in the world who intimidated me i i had i mean i was i was used to (laughs) i was being mentored by one of the the best uh toy inventors of all time and he took me under his wing and so i was used to sitting in on meetings listening and the pitch was always to the presidents and the vice presidents of the of the company so so i I met them I, i i've met celebrities i mean one of our uh one of our clients was evil knievel and i'm wow so, so this guy steps up and I'm just, I just, you know, I, I just looked at him and said, uh, well, gee, that's impressive. Um, so at, at the time when you show me what you've, what you've actually accomplished, then we'll have another talk. You arrived in Williams in 1981, and it sounds an interesting time to uh, join the company. Their sort of stars, Eugene, Jarvis and Larry DeMar, had kind of left to form their own uh, kind of setup, VidKids. I just wondered how you found the company. Were they sort of looking for a, a bit of a new direction? What were their, were their golden boys having left? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so, you know... The- <sighs> You know, the one guy I brought up, he was the exception to the rule um, because most people understood that some of the programmers were being put into roles where they were being asked to be Eugene and Larry. And, you know, I, I, I don't I think that they knew that these guys were superstar rock stars, but they didn't understand right away that how rare that combination of talent is that Eugene and Larry had. So 
people were being put into roles that they just weren't ready for. It was just like throwing somebody out of a boat and saying, hey, can you swim? Hey, you're, you're a programmer. Now I expect you to do your own art and talk to artists and then go over to mechanical engineering and talk to them about about the cabinet or any kind of control that you need. And uh, yeah, it just, it just wasn't working. So I was really in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ken Fidesna, who's who was the VP of engineering, was very aware that they needed to do something to be able to come up with ideas and help guide the programmers or lead a project or, or whatever. And at the same time, I also interviewed with Milestar and they were looking for the same sort of thing. So people were realizing as the first let's call them the, the first wave of superstars were, you know, some of them were going out on their own or they had special status or whatever. They're going, okay, so where's the next crop of games going to be coming from? Because we've got to keep that assembly line monster moving. John, let's let's go back and um, talk a little about your um, your earlier career as a game designer and a toy designer at Gordon Barlow Designs in Illinois. Um, you know, you've alluded to how that informed your video game design, but tell us about your role at Gordon Barlow. Yeah, so. Um... Chicago was not only the center, uh, the hub for video games, you had a lot of video game companies, coin-op companies were there. One of the most important test sites was there. But prior to that, it was also the hub of toy inventing in the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were there were pockets of uh, very famous toy inventors around the country, but Marvin Glass was the most important one, and they were in Chicago, and they had uh, a group of partners. And th- what a lot of people don't realize is that during the '60s and '70s, most of the toys were done by toy inventors, and then. Uh, the toy companies would take some of these concepts and then they would run with them, put them in their own style, marketing and all, and all that. Right. So this was sort of like the hidden group that people didn't know about mm. was where did the ideas really, where were they coming from? Where they, were they originating? Okay. And because I wanted to really design toys and games, I knew that I had to try to get into a toy inventing firm. And since I lived in Indiana, uh, you know, I'm going to go look, look in Chicago. And so that was Marvin Glass. And mm-hmm. there was a, a break off where um, Gordon Barlow broke off. He was one of the uh, five or six senior partners at Glass mm-hmm. and he formed his own studio. Okay. And so I was, uh, I was a game geek in my own right. And then I... I pretty much memorized all the toys that were done in the, in the last few decades by looking at my looking through my mom's um, wish books from <laughs> from places like uh, Sears and Montgomery Wards, right? So then I was buying toys and taking them apart, okay. and board games. I was doing the same thing. And I was already a, a chess junkie, backgammon and and Monopoly. I played those in tournaments and for loose change money. Okay. So what Gordon was looking for was somebody who could do game who could do game design and and toys and can do the art for him too because he, he he needed people that could do a bunch of things. So sure, yeah. 
So, so, so yeah, I was, I was, I was able to fill a, a package of needs for him. I, I could do all the detail game design uh, stuff for him. Did you have a hand in, um, in perhaps the most famous game, arguably, which is Mousetrap? Did you have a hand in that, or is that, is that before your time? Oh no, that was before my time. That right, was, right. Uh, that's what Gordon was most famous for. Got it. Okay. Yeah, he had, he has well over 100 patents and it might be closer to 200 and and that was the game he was most he was most famous for but that was okay but then you went on to 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 do electronic games for gordon barlow such as i believe pro electric bowling if i'm not mistaken yeah we we actually did quite a few we um right i don't know maybe three or four of them were picked up but we had we we had made quite a few try and that got rejected or but we would take them to various stages of development and if it wasn't panning out we'd kill it if it got far enough then a toy company would take it home right and then uh, a few of them made it all the way to making it to market how aware Um, how aware were you john of of coin op games and arcade gaming um at this stage and did you know did working on these electronic games prove useful was it was it a useful segue um when you went into arcade design um, yeah, so if if somebody asked me what were the most influential games to you, um, you know, I, Space Invader was number one. That was that was seventy eight, okay. and everyone was trying to mm-hmm. rip off home versions of it, and as well as various arcade ripoffs. So uh, once I would hear a heartbeat when I walked through a mall, I would go into the arcade and play that, and whatever games were there. But I also rank. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, Mark Lesser and, and George Close are two people that nobody knows. Okay, go on. Who invented uh, Mattel Auto Race? Okay, and that was that was the handheld game that started the boom for electronic handhelds. And right, uh, okay. it was just a simple, brilliant idea where the guy said, "Let's take." Um, uh, let's take a calculator display, turn it, rotate it 90 degrees, and turn on and turn on the symbols or turn or turn on the segments and use them as lanes of a road and and uh, blips for cars. And sure, yeah, yeah. So that was the the cleverness of that was inspirational, and the Space Invader also. And so then I was following. You know, any, any game that came into the arcade, I was looking at, and I was looking also at the electronic games to see what was happening. Fantastic. Okay, so Mother's Arcade in Chicago. Um, I believe that's where you met Tim Skelly and Steve Ritchie, um, being a place where they would hang out and indeed where Williams would put some of their games to test. You were regular there. Uh, yeah, and that was another part of the weird Cosmos click was that, yeah, Barlow was in in the suburb of Skokie and I live not far and my my best friend from college lived in Mount Prospect which is right where mother's arcade was and that's how I found out about it and then I found out that this was this was one of the most important arcades in the country yeah because every um Certainly, every company in the in in the Chicago area would be testing their pinballs and mm, mm, um, yeah and video games there. And so 
it was easy to spot the the designers because they would be there babying their games and then i was friendly with the with with the managers and they would point out a couple people and then i would i struck a conversation with the i remember striking a conversation with steve ritchie once and tim and tim skelly and so you would run into people that that worked at all these that all these companies because they were they were getting information for their test games so they they were the guys kind of hanging back maybe five meters watching other people play and you know to to observe what they did with their games and that kind of thing exactly and which which made it easy to spot them So the, the, the creepy guy in the corner is either a game designer or um, or something more sinister. I nearly did a really bad pun there. Sorry, <laughs> that was terrible. Well, actually, if yeah, could it? Well, yeah, that could Go be on. blended into one person. So you could. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. I mean, we've certainly met some strange people in the hobby, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to comment on the creatives. So on on arrival at Williams, uh, John, once you'd sort of settled in, uh, your job was to come up with possible game designs. Um, Two spring to mind. Um, One was, I believe, called War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. The other, obviously, was uh, Joust, which we'll go into a bit more detail on. Um, War of the Worlds. What 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 was that about, and why was that not picked up, as it were? Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, the the task that Fidesna gave me was he wanted what was called a treasure chest of ideas that, when programmers became available, they could kind of pick through the ideas. And so, I, I remember one of the first things that I did when I got to the company was I wanted to have a conversation with Ken and also the VP of sales and go, okay, tell me what the business is really, you know? So that's when they explained to me that, well, we don't sell to players, we sell to distributors. And we look at all the earnings at the arcades and that your job is to get a quarter out of someone's pocket every two and a half to three minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going, okay, well, that's really good to know because a couple things I want to present is one, uh, you know, a game that's more like a driving game where you can charge 50 cents for a play. And the other is to do something simultaneous two player, which is where Joust fit in also. So I wanted to make sure that uh, games that covered ways to get more coins in one shot were covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but War of the Worlds was the one that when I first presented, it was to Mike Stroll, the president of the company, to Ken Fidesna, uh, maybe Dylan was there it was for sales, and uh, Paul DeSalt, who was in charge of software. But uh, yeah, they liked it because it was... Um, uh, it, it was familiar to them because it was a, supposed to be a macho, fast action shooting game. Only you're driving, you're driving a tank, and you're being attacked in the air and on the road by uh, by alien craft. And you know that really fit their comfort zone because that's more in the Demar Jarvis arena, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- they could see the fun in that right away the the problem was is that there was no hardware that williams had that was even remotely capable of doing it okay so it was like okay look we really want to do this but let's put that on the back burner yeah there's an interesting quote by uh pt barnum who said no one ever made a difference by being like someone else and i guess this is where joust comes in right so you know joust is arguably unlike anything seen before so it's interesting that that ended up being the game uh to be developed i mean 
specifically the the sort of core mechanic of players riding on giant birds where where did that idea come from um i love the barnum quote and uh have lived by that in some cases and joust was definitely one of those cases um where if you're going to do a flying game let's do something different and also take into effect the technology so when you have if you have aircraft going across the screen, there's something that doesn't quite feel right because it's not they're not moving fast enough. But if they move too fast, you can't really play it. But a bird naturally goes into your mind as something that goes slower. Mm-hmm. And so it feels right. And this was something I, I researched a lot as well because I'm a avid movie buff. Then I was reading all kinds of comic books and Frazetta, fantasy, all, all that, all that stuff. And so there was all kinds of references in my head for different characters and mythology and stuff of, of flying. And I also went to the library and I was looking up what are what are the most common dreams of people. And flying was ranked as like number two, where people wish they could fly or, or other similar questions. Like if you had a superpower, what, what would you want it to be? And flying ranked up there. So I thought the psychology was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess Python Angelo's initial concept art really brought the whole look and feel of the game alive? Not exactly. Well, that's yes and no. Okay. Um, he he came to the company late. Our regular pixel artist was had left, but we had cleanup art that we needed to have done. Uh, the side cabinet still wasn't done. And so it was late in development that Python interviewed with the company. And uh, he's just, he's a great character who I could go on and on about. But but I, I loved him and I loved what he what he could bring. And he had a huge knowledge of animation and an incredibly fertile imagination. And a lot of people just didn't understand the joust concept. And so we were busy, kind of locked away. Uh, Bill Foots and Foots and I were, you know, kind of hidden away making this game. Um, we needed some way to have this be visual for, for other people to understand what the real intent was. And so Python and I talked about it a lot. And so he he helped me finish up the last minute animations in the game. And he did the side cabinet art. And we did the side cabinet art. I'm going, okay, you really nailed this. And I wish we could redo the, the marquee. But he then took it upon himself to make a Joust poster. And that's what captured what the intended feel was, which was that these were these were birds that were bred for combat or had exoskeletons. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about that and then he made he made them look really majestic and colorful and he and then he added some some like bionic stuff to their legs. And I'm just going, that's God, that's great. You just you nailed what was in my head. And this is like the the way it should it should look. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a big campaign because the poster was you know, Py- Python did a lot of campaigning to to get this poster 
to the AMOA show because the marketing people, they never gave out stuff. They didn't want to give out t-shirts or anything because they were just selling to the distributors. But Python and I and a lot of the people on the design end in the company were going, no, these are billboards and the distributors get them for their kids and then they display it on their walls or they wear it. And, and so that's how you reach the players. So, John, obviously one of the things that makes Joust so unique is the control mechanism and the core mechanic involves tapping a flap button. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how important that was to uh, drawing players into the game. Uh, yes, and it's I, I rank at number one. And, you know, you've got the it's it's the flapping and the, the AI and just being able to control the, the bird. The key thing was the controls, and, and it always is. And it had to glide, and when you let go of the button, it, the, the bird had to fall at the right rate. And so Bill Footson writer, or Foots, everyone calls him Foots, being the programmer was, you know, that's, He's a programmer designer because he had to he had to make this work. It's like I can describe it, I can pantomime it around his office, I can make little sketches of here's what I think should should happen. But at the end of the day, he's got to write code to make that work. So we had to work together mm -hmm. really closely to get this right. And we spent most of our time in development was spent getting the controls and also getting the AI correct so that you had that connection with the bird and that things felt fair when you were colliding with the enemies. So all that had to feel perfectly smooth and there was no reference game to use. So we had to do this on our own to get the feel right. Yeah. Um, just sort of finishing up on Joust, um, one of the things about the game that strikes me as a collector of um, arcade cabinets is obviously as well as the upright cabinet is the um, the incredible design of the cocktail table. Do you have any recollections about how it was decided that Jash should be a cocktail table and how that was going to be executed given that players sit alongside each other? Uh, yeah, they were trying to maximize sales. and And at the time they did uprights and then... They would always try to think about doing a cocktail table so they could fit into what we called street locations, uh, bars, restaurants, stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. but Joust had what we call it the problem. It's the design problem of well, you're playing two players simultaneous. So, so the cocktail table had to be completely redesigned and. Uh, all, all the credit to that goes to Leo Ludzia, who he was in charge of the uh, mechanical design and the cabinetry. And so he and his team, you know, worked to to get that to get that to be to be right where, you know, you couldn't be too jammed close together or else the cocktail takes up too much space. And sure. Yeah, it was it, it was a difficult design problem for them. And they did they did a good job. It's just it's just unfortunate that, you know, you know it's kind of at the end of that era where people were buying cocktail tables so i, I don't think we sold that many mm, yeah they're unique and they're very rare because uh, my recollection was like uh, 500 were made so you know when you figure how many were have been destroyed and trash compacted and and whatnot there just there just can't be many of those around John, you obviously had a huge success with Joust, and there's always pressure to to follow it up. Uh, 
And the next big game you were involved with was another hit, Sinistar. I just wondered, though, that idea had been knocking around at Williams for a while. I, I believe a chap called Sam Dicker had been working on it. When you first got involved, what was already there in terms of game design? Well, so Sam was a programmer and he he had worked with Eugene and Larry on, on Defender and... Um, so he was one of the programmers that was then given the shot of, you know, you know, try to come up with your own game. Hmm. And he was experimenting around with, um, well, he wanted to do a space game and he was experimenting with the flying. And initially he, the controls were very complicated. He didn't have a story. He just had a... Um, he just had a ship that, you know, he used programmer art to using graph paper so he could make his own rotations. And then he was kind of just left on his own to uh, to evolve or experiment with it. So it's one of those things where here's this, you know, it's a valid idea. It's like, you know, doing a top-down space game, it's cool. It's like, yeah, sure, sure, we should explore that. Why not? There's a successful path. It's just that uh, nobody had a plan for it. And that was a time when I was getting into some doing some management tasks. They like put me in charge of the art department. Okay. So my I was I was split. And I also this is a sidetrack. Like at the same time I did Splat, which was a game that failed miserably. So <laughs> what followed Joust was was Splat that I was kind of doing part time with a with a couple of programmers and you know i take total blame for that because that was that was a game (laughs) i thought would do well and the importance to me was uh don't ever get cocky you know it's like okay great so you just got through making your first game which which outsold robotron and um, i mean it was it, it was their second highest selling game and then i followed it up with ironically a game <laughs> called splat you know it's like well, yes it's like man that just you know that just, that put me in my place right away and the title was sort of yeah tempting fate there yeah um, just wh- why do you think just before we come on to sinister then wh- why do you think splat was such a failure this was this was a classic case of toy inventing methodology where it's like you do things that seem like a good idea at a time you should develop it far enough to see if it's fun and then if it's not fun you should kill it and i knew i knew i should have killed the game and then we got scooped by atari because they actually made a game called food fight at the same time so that didn't help and it's like you know the, the industry just the industry at that time was just afraid to kill anything and that's what we should have done it was like it just it doesn't have the depth for repeat play you can play it a few times and and then you're going to get bored with it and you know that should have been the end of the story and you know i take complete blame Let's come back to Sinistar. You've got this, you've got Sam and others working on this kind of space game. It needs some direction. And you respond to that by producing a 10-page design document for a game called Juggernaut, 
which would eventually become sinister. I want to know how it must have felt to put together a 10-page document about this game with loads of thought in it and then just pass it on to someone else, in this case, Noah Falstein. How does it feel to pass that on? Do you just kind of just pass and kind of hope that he's going to get what you were after? Yeah, uh, I think it, it... Okay, the whole Sinistar experience was very different, and it was something that I was more comfortable with from from my from my toy and game background. This this was not something that was mm-hmm. that was that was unheard of. You know, it's like, hey, you're a team. We're all making games. Um, yes, I I would love to to lead every project, but it doesn't have to be that way. And Sinistar is is a completely different story from any any other game that was worked on at Williams because you had you had Sam Dicker starting it. Nobody wanted to kill it because they saw that, okay, this had some promise. Sam Sam was really passionate about the game. He just didn't know where to take it. So it was Mike Stroll, who was the president of the company. He actually had probably the first brainstorm meeting that their company ever had oh. where he, he had an offsite game meeting at a, at a hotel. He invited some of the uh, various designers and programmers and, you know, they're their creative team. Yeah. So he had the 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 managers. So I remember Ken Fidesz was there, and Paul DeSalt, and Wally Smucha from from management, and Jan Hendricks I think was there, but Steve Ritchie was there. Mm-hmm. Probably Christina D'Onofrio, who was a programmer who was working on Mystic Marathon, and I think everybody felt really great about being included into what was probably the first brainstorming session, and this was. You know, this was my bread and butter. That's what I did every day in toy design. Okay, this, that's what we did. We brainstormed all the time. So, uh, so Steve Ritchie came up with a lot of ideas, and I'm sure other other people came up with some of my ideas. I just I took copious notes, which is what I always do. I always I always have pads of paper glued to me. Okay. Yeah. So after the meeting was over, it was like you know I just said just. Just let me handle it. <laughs> you know, don't just just don't worry about this. This is there's there's enough here, and um, there certainly there certainly was. I'm particularly intrigued that there were some ideas in that ten page document that actually didn't make the the final game. And um, I love the idea that there was a plan to actually have the Sinistar piloted by a kind of warlord who would escape once you managed to blow up the Sinistar. Um, that sounds really good. Do you sort of regret that an idea like that didn't quite make it? Into the final game. Okay, here here's my ground rules: is it's impossible for me to design a game unless I can play it in my head first. Ah. So I visualize it and then I write what I see in my head. Right. And so that's what I did with Juggernaut. I say I took all these these I these various ideas and just like I think another other storytellers is like, look, I'm going to pick and choose what I think fits. Write a story, and there was parts of the story that I was in love with, and but I wanted. I, I wanted anybody who took it to at least have a starting point where they could see a beginning or the end, mm-hmm. and then they needed to take it under their wing and have it be their own. So, so yeah, sometimes that's the hard part because sometimes somebody's going to cut something mm. that you go, yeah, if I was doing it, I, I would have kept that. But then they're going to come up with something also that they're going, oh, gee, you know, I didn't think of that, and that's pretty cool. You, you said that you played games in your 
sort of mind first? So literally, John, when you were working on something like Juggernaut that would become Sinister, would you sort of lie on your bed at night imagining what you'd see on the screen and, and the kind of experience that you as a player would have? Uh, absolutely. That is how I design games. And and that's also why it's really freaking hard for me to sleep at night because... <laughs> When you just when I'm just about to doze off and your mind kind of starts to shut down, that's when you start thinking of a lot of ideas, and that's why I've got notepads all around my desk and my and my bed. But yeah, if I if I can't see it playing, if I can't see at least some version of the game, because because even Joust in my first vision of it was different than as it ended up being, and, and but it's just that you got to see a beginning or the end, or else you're going to be floundering. I wonder if one of the reasons that Sinistar is so popular is that it taps into that kind of little guy versus the, the big guy, the kind of David and Goliath struggle. Were you very keen to make, you know, your shit feel very small compared to this this enemy that you're you're trying to desperately uh, destroy? Yeah, and and yeah, one of the one of the thoughts in my mind was was that it's a really good feeling when you can beat impossible odds. And I'll give a nod to um, Damar and Jarvis on that because mm-hmm. that's one of the learnings I took out of Robotron and why that still remains my favorite arcade game is because you, you look at this and you go this is this is freaking impossible <laughs> and you know but at least you see on the screen what you have to deal with and then when you get out of it you go I can't believe I got out of it and it's a real adrenaline rush and so that's something that was something I wanted to capture from the high intensity adrenaline blast of Sinistar to uh shooting turkeys with um, with turkey shoot which is one of your lesser known games john um let's chat about turkey shoot and um and and, and your memories of creating that game um yeah basically that i wanted to do a shooting game and i don't remember what came first if the concept came first or the turkey or the egg <laughs> yeah or or the sorry there there was um an external group uh, Games Alive, I think was their name, and they were in Atlanta. That one, they wanted to develop a game, and they, you know, the the company was always looking for, you know, is there is there a way to get another project started so that they don't always have all their eggs in one basket, you know, which <laughs> yeah was trouble they ran into frequently. Um, so ga- Games Alive, sorry to cut over you, but Games Alive were, you say, an external group. So yes. they're people that Williams turned to or, or indeed they, they approach Williams? Um, so they they were a group that worked with Joe Kamenkow, who is, he's an icon in the industry now. He worked at Williams for a little bit of time and they, they had programmed a game for him called play ball okay which never got made but they were looking for stuff to do and i mean that that frequently happened where people would would approach the company and say hey can we develop a game or mm. hey uh we want to we want to pitch a game to you uh can you fund can you fund us sure. so it was it was one of those situations and um 
Uh, I had wanted, I, wanted to try a, a shooting game, so I had an idea for, okay, uh, shall it be serious or shall it be for fun? And I, I flipped the coin wrong. <laughs> but what it comes down to was because the shooting game part of it was really fun, but I think that because it was uh, uh, weird and cartoony with the turkey theme that it um that was that was key to it not being big yeah well i I was going to ask you if you if indeed you had any reservations about doing a gun game but that's clearly not the case but the game memorably has real real feathers fly up um (laughs) in in the in the gap between two panes of glass thanks to a, a judiciously positioned fan I mean, that mechanic in itself, did that take much persuading to get that into the final cabinet? Or was it, did you have to fight for that? Or was I don't it... know. Do, do you know that story? Or no? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, a little, but... um. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so the thing about a gun game is it's expen- it's a, it costs more than a regular it's going to be higher than your regular price point because now you're having to pay for a gun instead of a joystick right so yeah sure, okay um i wanted to do something to get people's attention so mm. that was where I had the idea of well, let's let's blow some feathers up in the in the air. It's, it is funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there was a big deal where Mike Stroll, the president of the company, then was okay. We'll make the game, but the feathers have got to go because it costs X amount of dollars to put that in in manufacturing. And so he called together uh, his staff meeting of all the all the VPs. Okay, he's have a staff mm. meeting, and and Ken Fidesna made the mistake of telling me about it. <laughs> okay, so right. So I hired a singing telegram company <laughs> to have somebody dressed up as a as a turkey. Was it was this on Thanksgiving by any chance? Mm, no, but that would have made it sweeter, wouldn't it? Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I so I hired a singing telegram person dressed as a turkey, and uh, I bought a really expensive cigar because Stroll loves cigars, right? So it was actually a Cuban cigar, and and. Um, I had this poor sap barge in on his staff meeting and sing this stupid song about keeping the feathers in because it would be good for the game and and handed him the cigar and lit it for him and left. And it worked. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The game's set in 1989, and mutant turkeys have taken over the world. So, is this is this is this you predicting or or channeling the prevalent um, uh, contemporary concerns about GM food, um, or, or am I? Is that a stretch? No, it, it would probably fit 2020 better. You know, it's like it's like what? So what else can happen? Well, this, you know. So um, yeah, well, yeah, this is true. Okay. Yeah. No, there there's there was nothing behind it it was just supposed to be kind of a tongue-in-shake don't take it seriously i think i was probably also a little i wasn't really into the gun violence so i i didn't want to do the shooting and splattering somebody so that's probably what swayed me to go tamer but i just I'm sure it had an influence on me, you know, when I was doing that coin flip of do I do it seriously or not, mm, mm. of doing doing it um, really tame. And yeah, unfortunately, the right answer would have been what George Petro ended up doing, 
when he did the big buck hunter where he went right after you know hunting animals and games and yeah and that's something i would never i'm like the biggest animal softy in the world and i i i never would have yeah i never would have been able to do such a game no i'm and i'm re- i'm really glad i'm really glad those, those games just kind of they uh, i always my heart sinks a little when i when i see those games i know they're popular and i understand why but it's you know regardless so wh- why do you think turkey shoot didn't quite catch on i mean you're you're, you're shooting turkeys which um you know shooting and hunting animals is indeed a popular pastime in america but what why do you think turkey shoot didn't quite catch the public imagination in the arcade yeah i, d- I don't know i i know that that was a time where it was really hard to sell anything in the arcade right so you had to be really careful about what you were choosing and and whether it clicked with the audience or or not. There was just zero room for error. And you know, all I come back to is just that the uh, uh, the the cartoon graphics, uh, the the silly side of it, just didn't just didn't resonate. But yeah. I still maintain that the the gun shooting part of it, if you if you had stripped away all the all the characters and you just had boxes of it and you were trying to judge if it was fun or not the shooting the shooting part of it i thought was i thought was fun yeah do you know if the um the feather mechanic kind of you know held up in the arcade but i mean often on the podcast we 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 like to talk about that you know laser disc games and how um how they don't you know they 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 just kind of failed really quickly and the operators were like get these things out of here yeah and and obviously the one of the core things of turkey shoot is that gimmick of the the feathers flying did you ever hear of that just going wrong and then ops just kind of leaving it and 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 not bothering getting it fixed yes apparently there were some static electricity problems and so the feathers would clump together right okay I just want to ask one kind of final question, just kind of like, let's just tailing off with Turkey Shoot. Do you ever really know, do you have a do you have a sixth sense, if you will, for if any of your game concepts, or did indeed did you back in the day, did you ever really know they were going to be a hit or a miss? Did you think, wow, this this one's really going to be popular? Or is it literally just for luck of a draw? Or does it feel like that sometimes? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's a mix. It's like you, you hope it's going to be successful. I had, I had a good idea that Joust would be would be successful but Mm. um it was a really hard call uh because uh, virtually everybody was saying this game was going to fail because it doesn't it doesn't shoot yeah so yeah i'm sorry i'm taking a tangent on this one go go ahead um i felt in i felt in my bones that the game would do well because because it's different and we actually got the ai and the flying mechanics of it was right and also the taking a shot at multiplayer so so i thought all those things were really strong in its favor And you were proven correct. Uh, yeah, and yeah, so so yeah, there's there was a side story on that one. Was go on. There were so many. You know, the core group was very positive. Like I say, when Python got it on the team, he was actually he was uh he well, he was an extrovert, and there there mostly introverts on the team, and he was he was campaigning for it. But I know Footson Writer felt good about it. Ken Lance and some of the other people felt good, but they you know they're not real vocal spokesman but but other people that were being you know you know like mike stroll had no idea if the game was going to be successful or not and you know you've got your company riding on this game mm-hmm. and so he was asking some he was asking 
uh, a lot of industry professionals, and they were like universally panning it, you know, saying stuff like, I don't get it, it and it doesn't shoot. And I'm going, well, yeah, because it's not supposed to be Defender, you know. Yeah. But but it came, it came down to a show of wills, actually, because it kind of culminated just before, just before we were going out on test, Bill Herman, who is the owner of Mother's Arcade, was asked to come in and give his opinion on the game. And he wrote a blistering letter to Mike Stroll about how this this game wasn't going to do very good because yeah it doesn't shoot and this and that and wow and uh, so Stroll I think Fidesna was at the meeting mm-hmm. Foots wasn't because there a lot a lot of this stuff is I I wanted to buffer people on the team from anything negative mm. and so Stroll asked me what I thought of the letter. And I just, I stared at him and I just said, I'm right, he's wrong. <laughs> and and I think at that point, he was just looking for that. I had confidence. And, yeah. you know, really, when I left the room, I wanted to throw up in the sink and go, oh, my God. Sure. <laughs> you know, because I, I don't really know. And I only, you know, when they tested the game where they tested it way outside of Chicago so that nobody would see it or learn in case it failed. I, I, I knew instantly that it was going to be a success because the the king player of the of the arcade, you know, he always plays the new games, right? And yeah. so so he played the game a couple times, smashed the monitor, <sighs> he gave it gave it his middle finger. <laughs> Too often. I'm going, okay, well, this could be a problem, but then but then it was within a half hour he came back with his buddies and they played it the rest of his night. Yeah. And that's when I knew it was gonna be a success. But yeah, it took that long in development to know. So it's thanks to your um, your personal fortitude and presumably your great poker face as well that one of the most popular arcade games in existence um, actually came to fruition. Yeah, and this is something where, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit back and take credit for that. It's like my... Okay. It's very modest of you, John. Well, my role in that exchange was like in a prison movie. It's hmm? like, don't show fear. Now put your in the put yourself in the place of Mike Stroll and Ken Fidesna, okay, and and Joe Dillon, who's in charge of of uh, of sales, mm. and they're going okay. So they're hearing from a lot of industry experts that this game isn't going to do well. They're betting their company on it. They need, I mean, they're staring at big layoffs if they don't follow up the Robotron production line mm. with with another with another hit, and yet. They didn't kill the game or they didn't slow it down or whatever. They said, let's do it. So that took a lot of guts on their part, and I will forever give them huge credit for doing that. So I think it was a team effort. Everybody was kind of was kind of gambling and felt in the back of their head that, yeah, you know, let's give this a chance. It, it could work. I wonder if we can just talk very briefly about one of the podcast's favourite subjects, and that's laser games. Um, towards the end of your first tenure at Williams, um, you were involved with a project called Star Rider. I wonder if you can just sort of give us some context there as as to, was this a case of Williams feeling like this was the direction the arcade industry was going in and they needed to get a piece of the action? Yeah, it was... Um... <laughs> Yeah, it, it was it was it, it it was kind of a horrific situation. 
you know, again, going back to remembering that, you know, the, the customer was the distributor mm-hmm. and the operator, okay? And arcades were failing. There, there were, you know, so many games were going into the arcades that were just absolutely bombing. They, they weren't getting the earnings, and it was Dragon's Lair that got everybody onto the bandwagon of, oh, well, this is the Messiah, you know? So the answer to all of our prayers is going to be laser discs because here we have this. So so the first game out is is a mega hit, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then what our customers were telling us, what they were telling our management team is that the only games that we wanted to buy were laser disc games because this seems to be the only new game that was making money and also milestar was the i would think the only other successful game because they had mach 3 did quite well and so the scramble was that so now we're back into gambling the company mode okay they had they laid off a lot of people and which was very sad and they were going okay we're just gonna we're gonna take everybody and jam them onto onto star rider um i had pitched again okay don't forget war of the worlds you might want to try that but uh you know they 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 had to choose one and they said no we're gonna do we're gonna do the laser disc game Mm. I think, as you say, it's very unfortunate that um, Dragon's Lair was such a big hit because I think it set a level of expectation that, um, as we all know, ultimately couldn't be delivered. Yeah, and it also comes down to one of the main difficulties in the arcade industry at that time was nobody really knew what the formula was mm. for a success. Mm-hmm. But they didn't they didn't know what the next big thing was. People were guessing and everything you did was also secretive because look, if you did come up with the answer, you didn't want the whole world to know that you had the answer. So everyone was trying to solve this problem in secret. So the the whole company was being gambled on on Star Rider. Yeah, and I, I from what I read John, the development process was um it just sounds horrific. Well, it was it was a monumental effort. So Okay, so Python was doing the game design, mm-hmm. and um, and just the design itself is not only you're dealing with okay, so you're doing your first laser disc game, and now you've got the cost that you have to have an industrial strength expensive laser disc game because it was going to take such a beating in the field. But it's a driving game, so you wanted to steer off to the sides of the road to to get around obstacles and stuff like that. And so now they were designing a whole new hardware system, which they called an expander board, which ex- which expanded uh, what you saw on the screen right. so that you could actually drive off to the sides of the road. So that now they're taking that technical risk. We're working with a company in South Bend, Indiana, that you know I think I think we put. Their company under because you know they were doing the computer graphics for this game and you know the cost of that comes down to how long does it take to draw one frame of animation and then they calculate their cost to fill up the whole disc to have enough gameplay and so python was trying to gear gear his design concepts down so that 
Okay, this is, so this is where he came up with stuff like uh, Hexagonia and Crystallia. So he tried to make right. lemonade out of lemons, you know, that, okay, the more polygons you're drawing, the longer it's going to take a picture. So he's going, okay, well, let's let's invent these worlds that are very geometric. Mm-hmm. So, so there was... You know, so there was that design risk. And then it had uh, motorcycle handlebars. And so that was a whole uh, mechanical department design. And a motorcycle, in retrospect, was a very difficult thing because of the handlebars. It had a lot of pieces and parts in it that were easy to break in the field. Yeah. So it was not just taking on you know thing where you you know like dragon's lair which is which is like a movie and you're just recording someone's response of you know when you push the movie forward that'd be one thing but there was like a half a dozen major technical things that were being tackled at the same time and literally every department was was in there with their sleeves rolled up trying to invent all this new technology Mm. it was just you know that, that, that's a really tough gamble to make. So I wonder if if that difficult development process around Star Rider um, had some influence in terms of your departure from uh, Williams at that time, John. Um, no, um, no, it was, a, it was a combination of things. Okay, and of course you ended up at um, Gottlieb uh, Milestar. Could you sort of talk through your role there? Was it was it much different to your role at Williams? Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't have any managerial responsibilities of any kind there. Mm-hmm. It was just um, come up with a couple of games for us, and uh, that's why I met Warren Davis, and we had worked on several projects when he then came to Williams, became Williams Midway. Right. But we didn't. We didn't actually work together at Milestar. I I worked with um, uh, Bill Adams. We were trying to do a link cabinet master slave uh, multiplayer game. I can't remember if we linked together four or eight. We were trying something very novel. Yes. Also with Al Rossetti, we're trying something different too, where I it was like a, it was like a physical slot machine that fit on the monitor. You would press a button and spin the wheels on the slot machine, and that would determine what wave you played and what the parameters were. So what what characters, what the reward was, what type of wave would come up in the slot machine, and then you would see them as pixelated characters in the game. So we were trying a couple of very experimental things. Do you think that the arcade industry was um, looking for a way forward instead of relying on a lot of these sort of Me Too shooters and what have you? Yeah, that was yeah that was exactly the the issue was that the arcades were having so much difficulties and it was time to it was time to try something new. My my biggest fear was that the stuff we were trying new was going to cost a lot, mm-hmm. you know. So that was so that was the risk. But I think it was important to try something different to give people a reason to come back to an arcade that where they didn't see five hundred different ripoffs of Pac Man. You, you know, they needed they needed a reason to go there. So that's what we were trying to do. Sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, your time at Gottlieb was was a milestone, rather was um, relatively short lived, John. Yeah, that was probably one of the angriest I ever got in the industry. Was that 
they, they closed the company down. Mm-hmm. We didn't get a chance. So we didn't get a chance to finish these two games to see how they might come out. They weren't quite far enough along for someone to take the risk to, you know, invest in the in the team or to buy them. And I didn't think they even made a very good effort to try to sell them. Yeah, so I was really upset that they didn't make a better effort to try to see if somebody might take these games to get them finished or farther. Mm. And it also upset me because I think the absolute upper management guy had to have known that the company was in trouble and that was that wasn't really um, laid out to me clearly when I came on board. But then again, um, I think you'd have the same situation anywhere you went at that particular time in history. So I'm just pointing out that at the time, I was pretty livid about it. John, after a not very fruitful time at uh, Milestar, you return to Williams, except it's not quite Williams, it's uh, they've merged now with Midway. I just wonder, they often say never go back, John. When you did return, had things changed a lot? Yeah, and ironically, there were quite a few people that had come and left the company, but yeah, almost every almost everybody had left Williams. So a lot of the management guys, I think Fidesna was there the whole time through, and he was he was the most key manager at Mm -hmm. Williams or Williams Bally Midway because he was the guy who was in charge of the call him the creative team the mm-hmm. you know the, the designers the artists the every you know the everyday so he he stayed there but like if i remember that's when i think it was between that time period was when eugene jarvis went back to get his mba yeah. at that time and um some of the guys uh, uh, rj michael and, and noah falstein they they started amiga yeah there was a lot of a lot of interesting and influential people uh, around yeah, yeah just the interesting thing is that so these people scattered and then like all of a sudden people were kind of being brought back one at one at a time i think that starting with with eugene to get the the hardware going for for narc or for the next generation they were going to do a next generation of games and mm-hmm. jack came back and then i i came back and warren Warren Davis uh, came in. Um, it sounds like it's a bit of a return uh, home. And of course, the, one of the projects you return to is, is one of your most successful ones, Joust. You're asked to work on Joust too. Well, first I want to ask, how does it feel being asked to return to uh, an incredibly successful game? Are you, does it allow you to do things that you didn't first time around? Or do you did you feel a little bit like, I've done this, I want to move on. Um, mixed. I'd always wanted to do. I I always wanted to do a sequel, and I really the sequel I really wanted to do was with hardware that didn't exist yet. So I'm so I'm settling for something that yeah I I want to do the subject matter again, but this but not really on this hardware. And um, the other thing that I was unsure about. And where I probably should have said no was that, that again, they weren't selling a lot of games at the time. And mm. and the design parameter, sales actually put a design parameter, which they, they never do. 
and they said, whatever game that we do has to be on a vertical monitor because their intention was to um, to retrofit Pac-Man. Oh. Because, because there were so many vertical screen monitors out there in the field, they were really looking for a... Yeah, they were doing a yeah. It was a conversion kit was what, what they were called. Uh, was to, was to convert a lot of these these dead vertical screen games. So as a games designer, is that rather annoying that they restricted your creativity by saying it has to be like this? Yes, <laughs> and. Before they asked about Joust, they wanted VidKids to do Robo- to do Robotron or or their next Robotron light game on a vertical screen, and they said no. So <laughs> so it's like okay, so I was the second guy asked to the prom, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and my attitude, which got me in trouble sometimes, was was that, you know, th- there's there's times when you need to say no because you think it may not work or even sometimes you need to be selfish and go, you know, look, if, if, if they're doing a scorecard, if it's successful or not, then, you know, if this doesn't work, it's going to, they're going to mark it down as a loss on my scorecard, okay? So you, you hate to have to think about something like that, but it crosses your mind, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but, but my attitude was, was always that, yeah, let's, tr- so let's try it. So I wasn't, I really wasn't prepared to say no. And if I said no, it's, Okay, then let's do this instead. So I didn't have the backup for what to do. And I, let's 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 go for it and see what happens. So that was that was the attitude. Yeah. One of the key things is that you add another amount. You can swap between an ostrich and a flying horse, Pegasus. Yes. Had that been an idea that you'd thought about through the first joust? The Pegasus? Yes. The idea of switching between mounts. Um. Yeah. Well, in in the first joust, I'd always wish that there was more memory so we could do more care characters and be able to have a choice maybe a choice of characters that you could select that you can control Mm -hmm. so we still didn't have enough memory to to try uh, like a library of characters that you could choose from so i settled on the pegasus because it made sense because they had it had wings and because it's literally bigger and heavier i felt that there was no instruction required it's that i think you would understand that in a collision that you're going to be more powerful when you when you hit somebody but that you're going to fall at a faster rate so so that's that's why it shows a pegasus you um, you also collaborated with Warren Davis mm-hmm. on Joust too, and he's been a guest on the on the podcast. Um, I just wondered what was he like to collaborate with John? Well, Warren and I worked on a couple of projects together, and like on, on Joust two, there were several programmers. We started with one programmer, and he he eventually left, and we ended up that and he was new to the industry, mm-hmm. and so. So we went with a team of Christina D'Onofrio, who had been with the company for a long time, and she did Mystic Marathon. And then Warren had come to the company, which I thought was great because I always wanted a chance to work with him. And I don't know how my recollection compares with Warren, but I, I try to let the programmers on their own to do 
you know, I wasn't going to tell them how to program. I was just going to give them the, you know, look, here's here's the gist of what we want to accomplish. We've we've got a reference game, which is Joust. So the flying is really important, you know. So we want to make sure to capture that feel. And, and then we've got more that we can do with the background. So let's take advantage of the of what the hardware is capable of. And yeah, I don't remember giving them a lot of day-to-day direction. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you come into their lab? I wondered how it worked. Would you kind of come into their lab after a, a few days, perhaps, and say, how, how are you getting on there? And you'd look at what was on the screen and then go, great, or, oh, that's not what I meant. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I, I, I can... I have a much clearer recollection of how Bill Futzenreiter and I worked on the original Joust. And for like example, I imagine it would have been similar with them, but I, I couldn't attest to it because I don't remember that clearly. But here's here was a typical scenario for Foots and I on Joust is, okay, so he's working on the AI for the enemies and I'm, I'm describing how stuff works. Mm-hmm. And because the ledges have a lot to do with how the AI performs. I wanted to do the artwork for the ledges myself and, and tweak how long, how thin, or if, or what the ends look like because it would uh, affect how the characters bounced and if there was enough room. Mm-hmm. And so when he had a version for me to test, then what I did was I had a monitor that didn't have a bezel around it. So I had dry erase markers and uh, drafting equipment. And I would I would mark out the flight paths of each classification of bird. Mm-hmm. So I knew exactly what the flight paths were and where they would hit the ledges. And then I would communicate then with Bill and go, okay, look, here I've been testing your AI and here's what happens. You know, I think we should do this and this. What do you think? You know, my guess is I would have done the same thing with Christina and uh, Warren, but mm-hmm. but I, I don't remember. I think I think Warren probably remembers more about that experience than I do. They remember as it being hard work and a tough project how did you when it eventually came out in 1986 were you satisfied with joust 2 um i was always bothered by the vertical monitor i thought it was a fair attempt and that there was enough different things going on in the background and i was really curious to see how it would do and if this is what former joust players would would like so i i wasn't entirely sure how well it would do john um moving on with williams and a title which is infamous for for a few different reasons not only because of its pioneering digitized graphics but also its ultra violence uh, and that game is narc um what was your involvement on this project and any qualms about the about the drug theme and indeed the violence uh in light of you know our early discussion about shooting games yeah that whole project it was a very mixed bag right so on on one hand I was really glad to be back and that they were doing a next generation of of hardware that supported digitizing. So it was like a kid in the candy store where you're going, hey, we can we can digitize people and things and that's gonna look really cool and different in the game. And it's kind of a different tangent from the Japanese market. So 
we're doing something different. This feels really good. Yeah. So Eugene was the guy that got the the hardware going, and he worked with the hardware engineer and was uh, so. So I believe it was his brainchild to of you know here's what the next generation of of hardware and games would be with the digitizing. Yes, yes. Warren did all the tools and and he kept and then throughout the 90s we got better tools and better graphic hardware tools that we could use with the target system so yeah. he could do even better. But for but for Narc, that was the first pass. So Warren was he so he did all the the art to support what the hardware could do. Um, and then Jack Hager was artist animator, and I wasn't I was doing art animating. But what they did was they split into we split into two games. Right. Yes. So Warren and I worked on USSA, which was. It was a game that was supposed to be kind of a takeoff between kind of a red red dawn neighborhood nuclear superiority thing where okay America's under attack and you've got these you've got these buildings and and now you're you're fighting back against the attackers with uh, in uh, pickup trucks and and you could fire missiles out of the back of your pickup truck and we used uh, a sprint cabinet as our as our demo cabinet because it had a steering wheel we could do it for two do a two-player cabinet or a three-player cabinet and so that was i felt coming along well in the meantime eugene was working with jack and george petro on on narc Mm. and which was a totally different vision where you know they're using they're digitizing people they're doing the side view of buildings and then at some point there was um, something happened on the managerial level where where they said either that we can't afford to do two projects or you know we had to put the whole team onto one project and we had, we had to kill we had to kill one. Yeah, Warren Warren um, uh, Warren mentioned this and he was um, I don't think he was I don't think his recollection of this time was um, much of a happy one because I think the amount of time he put in on USSA. And and you of course can talk about this. I think he I think he couldn't quite understand why it had to be one or the other. I think he was like, "Narc is great, USSA is great. Why can't we do both?" Yeah, that was pretty much my attitude too. I didn't I didn't understand it. I I, I knew that one weakness that that we had was our our cabinet, our product would end up costing too much. Right. So I don't know if that was a factor. What we were told was that they just needed a game to come out quicker. So so they needed to combine the teams and well if you did that you're no matter what you're going to go with Jarvis's uh game vision because he um, um but, you, you don't think the ultraviolence and the preponderance of blood was like a you know did they think you know what this is going to get the kids this is going to get the boys um you know the fact we're kind of blowing apart drug dealers which is essentially you know just an excuse to kind of blow blow bodies apart do you not think it was a more of a cynical um, yeah, and you know the the stuff you wonder on the side is you, you go okay. So was some of the you know were the two games being pitched? Was there politics involved? Was there? Yeah. I don't know because I wasn't in on those uh, on those meetings, so I can't speculate. I just sure. I just know 
all I know is what ended up happening was they said, okay, you all go on to, on to NARC, and they might have told Warren to go on to a football game, which is a different long story, and Warren didn't want anything to do with football because he's not, he's not a sport guy. <laughs> sure. So that would have defeated the purpose. It's like, okay, well, if you're trying to consolidate all your guys and to get one, one game out, then why would you move somebody to a game they have zero interest in? Yeah. So I made up my mind to just, you know, I, you know, I didn't mind doing the the animation work, mm. and I wanted to see the industry come back, and mm-hmm. so I was I was going to give it my my best shot. But yeah, I really didn't like the game message. I had a big problem with it. I, you know, I didn't like vocalize it a lot because it was useless. But I I took great offense to the fact that the that there there was a character that was shooting drug needles at you i i I find it amusing that you know let's say you know (laughs) these two characters if you were playing as two players probably wiped out far more (laughs) far more people um you know with firearms than uh than any than any amount of drug dealers did in this in in this universe but i yeah and i i know the game was done you know i i call it eugene humor or where it's it's over the top it's meant to be sarcastic sure of course yes you know he's 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 not out there campaigning for people to shoot themselves with no, guns. No, 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 of course. Trying to make it funny because it's satire. Kids, kids yeah, it's satire. Kids find that cool, but just personally, I, I I don't like that direction, and that's just not a game that I would have ever chosen to have done by myself. But you know, I'm also a professional. I wanted to work on that ge- on. I, I didn't want to just leave mm. the company. No, sure, of course. It was like okay, so. I'm going to put my best foot forward and then maybe the next game that we do would be something that I'm going to feel a little stronger about. So it was a struggle that if you don't, if you're not totally sold on some of the directions on the game, you don't want that to affect your work either. And so that you end up doing a half-assed job because you're going, I, you know, don't believe in some of this. So well, I guess I guess that's the difference between a between a craft and a fine art, perhaps. I mean, you are, after all, working in a commercial environment um, designed for punters to uh, pump in the quarters. Um, are, are you always profoundly aware of the state of technology and 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 how this might allow or restrict your game design concept? So with NARC, it's you know, in terms of the tech, you you're a leap ahead in some ways from your Joust days. But of course, you know with the drive for more and more realism um and the move away from abstract concepts um did you actually find that restrictive um or or did you welcome it no i i welcome the digitized approach because so i i'm a sports geek i wanted to do a sport game and eventually eventually i picked up uh doing high impact football which which earned a ton at the at the at the arcades and then led to Tremel during NBA Jam. And so so when you think about what types of games can you do now that you can digitize real people, you know, that 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 created a lot of synergy in the department where, you know, you had Petro and Hager did the Terminator game and then Yeah. yeah. Uh, an Aerosmith game, and then Mortal Kombat. But you, I think we even, I think Eugene and I even did 
when we're doing NARC, we did like a quick demo showing two really large characters punching each other <laughs> to try to show management. Here's the potential of what digitizing a real character can can do. Sure. And then it was really cool to see these things start to happen. So that also became the, the Midway signature. So then when you go back and you look at the history on that, you just, you've got to go, okay, I want to give Eugene a hug because, you know, he, you know, he got the, he got the company back. It's got on the right mm, track mm. and, and, you know, certainly Warren's efforts with, uh, you know, making it work technically as long as, as, as well as the, the hardware guys. So that game, regardless of critiquing anything in the game, um, it made all of the 90s games that were done by by uh, Williams Bally Midway possible. Mm, so mm. it was it was groundbreaking and, and important. And those guys deserve a huge amount of credit because they made all that happen. You're very modest, John, I have to say. Um, you, you have much praise for the team. John, Eugene, you, you, you speak highly of Eugene, you speak fondly. What was he like to work with on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, because he is, you know, seen um, by a lot of people as the, you know, the granddaddy of video games uh, in, in some ways. Well, it, yeah, it, it's hard to describe. We had different personalities. Sure. And our our tastes in games were different because, like, he, he never... I think when asked about Jaws, he said, I, I just don't get it, you know? Mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, but it, it's just that it's a different taste. He he likes the fast action macho shoot him yeah. up, you know, over, over the top stuff. And then he went into driving, which is, yeah, that's another simulated experience where you can go over the top. Yeah. So that, that was his style of game. You know, what, what I celebrate about Eugene was was that he was so good at doing that type of game. And then you also have to look back at, he stuck with coin-op his whole life. So he went to Raw Thrills and it's like- Yeah, he's still in it. He's still, yeah, for sure, so, yeah. You yeah. know, I, 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 moved to, I moved to mobile games and uh -huh. stuff and he's he's still doing it. So the So the passion is there. But when I rank, it, you know, it's hard when you, when you rank influences. Yeah. It's like, I really appreciate working and learning from Eugene, but I know that we were different people and he had some different styles different, mm. but my biggest influences was um, Shigeru uh, Miyamoto uh, because our, our backgrounds are very similar. So I knew a lot about the Japanese, the Japanese guys. Mm. So I actually followed their careers and, and they were a big influence because Miyamoto did story first. That's how I work. So, so here's a guy that I'm more in sync with just because we have a similar backgrounds and work style yeah. and, you know, you can't forget Ed Log and it's like, you know, I don't want to make it a contest. So people resonate with you for, for different reasons. Yeah. I, I really appreciate working with the people I did work because you appreciate the things that they were good at, that they brought to the table and that it's kind of a culmination of different people fit different niches. Mm. You combine that whole wealth of knowledge and you go, I now have this library of people with different 
work styles, approaches mm. to how to do games. And I'm not going to say which is right or wrong with the ones that have done really successful games and have repeated mm. it. Mm. You know, I just, I just consider it a, a, an honor to have been able to, um, to work with these, these different people and, and, and see that there are different ways to make a game and not just point some finger and say, Hey, you got to do it my way, you know? I have to ask you, John, actually, um, you, you've touched upon a few names um, over the course of our discussion. You've mentioned some, um, uh, some female designers and it's often said, um, and it's probably often the truth that, you know, there weren't many women in video games back in the day. Um, would you, would you attest otherwise? And it's a case of that they just haven't been remembered for whatever reason, which we can speculate about. There were not. And so when I first came to, when I first came to Williams, there was a programmer, Christina D'Onofrio. Right. And, uh, so she was doing the Sam Dicker equivalent of experimenting with the game. She was experimenting with what eventually became Mystic Marathon. Right. So, so Jan Hendricks was a was an animator. Mm-hmm. So she worked on Joust and made a huge contribution of getting the character so realistic. Mm. Um, and then there was a woman um, engineer, and that was that was about it. And maybe somebody in the lab. It was which was really sad. And and when I was put in charge of the art department, I made it like a first priority was to hire a couple females, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, because one thing that Williams was really lacking, in my opinion, was the diversity of opinions. You know, and if you're struggling to find different ways to make games to appeal to a different customer base, you need to have a well-rounded team. Yeah. So Ed Log did Centipede with... Uh, Donna Bailey. Yes, Do- Donna Bailey. And yeah, but, but there there weren't many, many women at, at that time. Do you think um, um, uh, game design studios had a uh, some somewhat of a macho culture uh, or do you think that's just um, a sign of the times really? Do you think it's just kind of sadly how it was back then and, and that glass ceiling was ever present and, and obviously still is in some ways? Yeah, that's that's hard to comment on. It's, you know, I, I think it depends a lot on the company where, you know, certainly, you know, Williams, they, they didn't know what the formula was for a, a game that would be successful, but they did know that what worked for them were the VidKids' uh, macho, fast-action shooting games, okay? And so... Yeah. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. So that's what that's what they could rate, relate to. That was their comfort mm-hmm. zone. You know, so if you look at Atari, um, there was a little... There was there seemed to be a little more diversity there. You know, Centipede was one of my favorite was one of my favorite games. Um, so you didn't have to just make games like Asteroids. At least they tried to diversify. Sure. Yeah, we long we long to get Donna on. Actually, Tony's been speaking with her on and off, and it's um it's it's a goal of ours to to get Donna on the podcast if at some point she'll be willing. Um. Uh, uh, John, um, you've you've mentioned to us over email, and you've also mentioned to us on on the record that you consider yourself something of an introvert. Um, I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but did you ever find working in a team difficult, or uh, did you ever find that your perhaps slightly more story led abstract ideas were were a difficult fit sometimes? 
Yeah, it's 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 always hard to work on a team when you're when you're an introvert, and sometimes you don't know if you're getting your point across, and so that's when you have to do visuals yeah. and things like yeah. that to try to get your point across. And and back then there was we didn't have the internet, and which is what I would have freaking killed mm-hmm. for. You know, now nowadays when I you know I'm working with a lot of global companies, and it's like well. So to communicate there, you put together a PowerPoint and you put in pictures and you let the pictures do the talking. And so you, know, you can be a little more introverted and, you know, you, you do a pitch deck on a, on a PowerPoint and use, use visuals. But uh, yeah, no, it's always, it's hard for me to talk into a, to talk to a group and uh, because ultimately you've got to share a vision sure. or else, or else the whole team is going to be going in a different direction. So. So you just you just get over it <laughs> perhaps far less scope these days to present as you did back in the day present your um your ideas stuffed inside a rubber chicken to grab somebody's attention or, or you know all these kind of wacky crazy go-tos which, which probably flew no pun intended back then are, are probably uh few and far between well the groups were smaller then yeah too so so yeah when when i interviewed it was to two guys yeah you know? sure okay sure, sure. <laughs> and, and 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 that was it and the, and the team sizes were were smaller well and when you were doing the coin op games the the meetings were very segregated so there there was very rarely like a big group meeting of the people on Joust but even then the team was small because some of the some of the people they just they, they weren't on the team for that long and then they and they left so like the the sound guys weren't on very long and these were these were pioneering days of course John so so perhaps combined with your youth um there was much more scope to perhaps be yourself back then I would imagine yeah yeah I think so and also uh Foots was a was a major introvert too so and so was uh Ken Lance was an introvert right uh so there there was some uh camaraderie there yeah, I sure. guess that that we we just and then Angelo was the opposite he was he was the he was the showman showman guy I mean even on his interview he introduced himself as the great Angelo right <laughs> <laughs> it was like okay this is going to be great this is going to be this this is this is going to be fun john thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast when we invited you you said you were rather nervous about coming on it's certainly not shown at all thank you for sharing so many wonderful stories likewise um, John, thank you so much for coming on. I'm only disappointed we didn't get a chance to talk about your time with Aerosmith, but maybe we can maybe we can save that for part two. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure being with uh, being with you guys, and um, yeah, I just I just really love it that there's people in groups that are just keeping the memory of some of the classic games alive and some of that. And some of that early history, because so much of it is going away now, and you see all these, you know, all, all those arcade games. So there's so few of them by percentage that still exist. And the uh, the people that worked on some of these initial games were getting older, and you know, I don't trust I don't yeah. trust my memory on some things, <laughs> and and so sometimes you got to compare with other people that are going to remember things differently, and and that's what happens the longer you get away from. We'll that. remember it for you wholesale. <laughs> Paul, very good. Um, John, it's been it's been a pleasure. What what you contributed to 
to the form, if I may call it that, um, uh, you know, your contribution was pivotal and it's been an honor talking to you and uh, thank you very much for coming on and, and reminiscing for us. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank you.